Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Jana Morlone about her book, The Philosophical Child. Jana, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Um, I am the director of the University of Washington Center for Philosophy for Children, and I founded this center, which has been in existence now for 20 years. This is actually this year is our 20th anniversary. We are part of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Washington, and our main mission is to introduce the philosophical inquiry to children and youth through schools, through parenting programs, and various other um, methods. How did you come to write The Philosophical Child? Well, um, I'll back up a little bit and talk a little bit about how I came to be interested in talking about philosophical issues with children and then lead into how the book came to be. Um, I was a graduate student in philosophy when my oldest son was around four years old and started to ask me questions that I recognized as genuinely philosophical questions like, are numbers real? Or uh, what does it mean to be fair? And I began thinking about the way in which, as a young child, I was really interested in these big questions and started to think about whether this might be something that children were interested in general and whether there might be some utility in seeking to provide a space for them to think about these questions. Because I realized that for me as a kid, having the ability to think about these questions and talk about them with my father, who was interested in talking about such questions with me, really allowed me to develop a kind of confidence in my own ideas and my own questions that I think has really been important to me in my life. And I started to think about the ways in which that kind of confidence and ability to sort of understand your own experience and um, be comfortable with inquiry about your own experience might stand many children in good stead, and particularly those kids who are least likely to have access to this kind of enrichment or thinking. So that's how I got started. I started by teaching a little kindergarten class for my um, oldest son's kindergarten and started to see right away, really, that most children were really reliably interested in talking about philosophical questions. And invariably, every year, at least a couple of times, a child will come up to me and say, you know, I think about these questions all the time. So I, I, I really think that there is a genuine general interest among young people in talking about these questions because often I think adults and parents and teachers, et cetera, we, don't, we underestimate their capacity for engaging in philosophical thinking and don't really 
give them the opportunity to do so. So um, as I've been doing this work over the years, I started a blog about, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, and I started to get a lot of questions from parents in particular. How do you do this with your children? Because I would write sometimes about my conversations with my own kids or conversations with kids in classrooms. What are some tips for doing this, especially because I use children's books, picture books a lot, and a lot of parents are familiar with some of the books that I talk about, they wanted to know, you know, how do I do this with my own kids? And so that's really how the book came to be. And you're not simply asking philosophical questions and listening to children's responses. They're raising many of their own questions to you and to each other. I was particularly interested in a section where you discuss death with a class of 10-year-olds, and they're raising questions like, would life have meaning without death? And uh, would life be better without death? Some of your adult friends have told you that they pondered these same questions like you did as a child, but they didn't have a philosophy professor visiting their class. And most adults aren't comfortable talking about these issues with each other, let alone their children. So these questions go unanswered and it can leave us feeling anxious, alone and confused. Um, I'm sure many people still feel that way, even as adults. So how can we normalize these philosophical conversations in everyday life? Well, I think that one of the problems is that people think about philosophical conversations as something kind of esoteric and abstract and separate from ordinary life, something that, you know, adults who have degrees do in universities. But really, we have philosophical conversations all the time, right? When when we ask ourselves or we talk to someone about what the right thing to do is or whether we think someone really is a good friend, those are philosophical conversations. So I think one of the things we need to do is reclaim our own capacity for engaging in philosophical conversations without needing, you know, a PhD to do so. And then be willing to kind of play with ideas without being sure that you know what the answer is or where you're going to get in the conversation. I think one of the things that children bring to our conversations, our philosophical conversations, is just that they're really willing to have a playfulness about the ideas and they're willing to entertain the possibility that an idea that they're examining might actually not turn out to be very fruitful or that a view they've put forth might turn out to be mistaken. And I think adults have a harder time doing that. We we have a more difficult time getting comfortable with uncertainty and getting comfortable with, with what we in philosophy call epistemological modesty. And that just means, you know, the, the, the uh, reality that even our strongest views might turn out to be wrong. And so I'm, I'm hearing you say two things. Uh, one, uh, we may need to rethink what it means um, to to discuss philosophy. Um, and really, we're we're contemplating philosophical issues all the time um, out, outside of the university, just uh, kind of making decisions mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And then uh, the other thing that I'm hearing you say is that uh, adults don't often see children as conversation partners. Um, so, you know, when you're approaching a child to, to talk about one of these issues, you're, you're going to them with a different kind of objective. You're not trying to get them to your point of view or you're not trying to get them to do something. Um, you want to see what they think um, and uh, see what they think in response to what you think and kind of have a back and forth 
um, that usually adults reserve for other adults. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's right. So what are the advantages of, of talking with someone with such limited experience? Good, good, good question. Um, and I think, uh, so there's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one, with your own children, um, I think one of the advantages or one of the benefits is that it kind of creates a special space, which, and, and there are other things that might create the space, but it is one of the things that creates a kind of space in which you are a more at an equal level with your child because you're inquiring about questions to which you don't have the answers either. In so many areas with our children, we are the experts, right? We're there to kind of advise our children, teach them how to do certain things. And in philosophical conversation, of course, we don't have the answer about, you know, what fairness is or what justice is any more than our children do. We may have some, we may have thought about it more, maybe, maybe not. Um, and we, and we have some, as you say, greater life experience and conceptual sophistication, but what children bring to the conversation is a freshness of perspective, is a willingness to look at things in a new way. They aren't burdened with the, um, assumption that they already know a whole lot of things. And so they're really willing to kind of entertain some possibilities, some imaginative possibilities, or some kind of out-of-the-box possibilities that I think adults have a harder time getting to. And so when you have these conversations with children, they're, they're, I mean, I've never had a philosophical conversation with, in a classroom, I don't believe, where I haven't learned something. Are there special considerations that teachers or parents should make when having these conversations with children? Well, there are a couple of things I would say. I mean, the main thing is that we're, we're really not coming to these conversations to impress upon children how important philosophy is or how thoughtful our own views are or, you know, or any of that, right? We're really coming to these conversations to listen. To what children, to what, which questions children want to think about, which questions they want to discuss, and then be willing to kind of enter into the, that inquiry with them without already having a whole list in our own heads about all the things we want to make sure the child understands. So I think, it's, so like I, as I said earlier, I think it's a very different kind of exchange than the ordinary exchange that we have with kids. So the main consideration, I think, would be not to presuppose, so you say you read a storybook with your child, not to presuppose that, oh, you know, this storybook is about friendship, and that's what we're going to talk about. Because it may be that the child picks up on something else, like what does it mean to be alive or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like um, we're all better served when we're um, engaging the uh, others in conversation, uh, others who are of uh, different age, experience, or uh, maybe a philosophical disposition. And so these conversations can be uh, mutually beneficial. I'm, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of, about a, a, an, an example dialogue that you've had um, with your own children or in a classroom where you walked away from the conversation learning as much as the students or the children did. There have been a lot of them, and so the one that comes to mind is the most recent one, which happened in the past week, um, where I was in a class of third-grade students, and um, we read a story called Freedom Summer, which is about the summer of 1964, and which the Civil Rights Act was passed, and about um, some events in a small southern town, and this is a very diverse class of kids, and um, the 
and the discussion, the questions that the children raised were mainly about race. And so we ended up having a discussion about really the discussion turned to how can we uh, stop racial oppression from continuing? Um, Because one of the kids in the class pointed out that even though the Civil Rights Act was passed a long time ago, there's still lots of segregation around the country, particularly in schools. And um, so one of the kids suggested that maybe the only way to do it is to have the races live separately, which was a very wild suggestion. And, And most of the kids were quite taken aback by it. But it really kind of opened the door to this very open discussion about what races what what we even mean when we talk about race? Some of the kids were pointing out that these terms we use, black and white, for example. One child said, I mean, look at the whiteboard. Do you know anyone that color? I mean, actually, what does that even mean? I mean, everyone's skin color is a little bit different from everyone else's. And at the end of the discussion, one of my undergraduate students who was there said to me, you know, I have never heard a more comprehensive and open discussion of race and racism among any age group in my life. I mean, it was just really um, such a, it was so opening. And I think what I learned from it was how much courage it takes to really articulate what you're thinking about difficult subjects in a class in which people have very different perspectives and be able to kind of listen to everyone else's ideas and put forth your own in a spirit of kind of trust and openness. It was really inspiring. I think a lot of adults would like for their children to participate in in such an open conversation like that, Um, but they may feel intimidated um, to begin those conversations with their children themselves, knowing that any questions can come up and, How do you respond to such a provocative statement? Um, What can we do as adults to prepare more for these conversations? Well, I think, I mean, I think one of the things is to um, be willing to enter into the conversation because so many times in schools, I think in particular, but in homes as well, when children raise really difficult questions like that, adults tend to want to just shut it down. Right. right. Well, that's, that's, I mean, we would never do that. Those days are long gone. There's lots of reasons we wouldn't do that. And kind of that's the end of it. Right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being willing to talk about the, the question or the issue the child raises. And so, I mean, it's, in some ways it's hard to prepare for the subject matter because you never know what question mm-hmm. the child's going to raise. But I would say in general, not to be afraid to engage with the question. I mean, often it's the, which of the richer the conversation is a matter of how we respond to the question and not so much the content of the question itself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You identify four subfields of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and aesthetics. How have your experiences working with children varied based on the branch of philosophy you were discussing? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, well, I guess I would say the one area that can um, raise some very personal, and I mean, I guess they all can, but in particular, I've seen some very personal issues like around identity or the meaning of life or the nature of death or 
the problem of evil raised in metaphysics. Um, and so those tend to be those kinds of, um, sometimes I think parents think of them as, as sort of scary issues when your child wants to talk about why people die or whether there's any point to living or these kinds of things. I mean, I've had, I've had a number of children over the years, as young as third or fourth grade, say things to me like, you know, when you think about it, if, all, if you're just going to go through your life and then one day you're going to die and that's going to be it, what's really the point? And that's a fair question. And I, and I guess I think that um, while there's maybe some trepidation around having those conversations with kids, the reality is kids are thinking about these questions. And one of the things we can really do to help them is to be a resource for them to talk about these kinds of ideas. So would you say that metaphysics is more accessible or interesting? It Might that be because it, it could relate to religion, which some kids may have experiences going to church? Yeah, I, I mean, actually, I, I'm not sure I would say it's more accessible or interesting. I would just say that sometimes it ten, tends to raise these kinds of deeper personal issues because I think, for example, aesthetics, I mean, kids often want to talk about questions like, you know, what does it mean to be beautiful or what is art? And certainly ethics and social and political philosophy questions about justice and what is the right thing to do and what does it mean to live a good life. Children are reliably interested in that. Um, I think that different age groups tend to be, and this is, I mean, this is a wild generalization because you can meet children of any age interested in any of these topics. But in general, I find that, you know, elementary school age kids are very interested in questions about fairness and about what's the right thing to do, questions like that. Um, middle school kids tend to, tend to be very interested in questions around, and at high school as well around identity and knowledge and whether we, how we know things, why we know things, whether we can know things, et cetera. You, um, you do offer advice to parents um, when they're responding to questions like um, follow your child's lead, try not to assume what, that you understand um, fully what she means with her statements, and ask lots and lots of questions. I'm wondering if you can share with us two ways the same conversation that a parent might have with her child could unfold, um, one in which a parent is trying to follow these steps and one in which uh, the parent is making some common mistakes. How might the former leave, leave both the adult and the child feeling stimulated from the conversation, and how might the latter leave them both feeling uh, frustrated, like they haven't learned something new? Okay. Um, so let me, let me see if I can do this. Um, sure. Let me give an example of a book many parents will know. Um, the Frog and Toad books are books that many parents read to their kids, and there's one story in the book Frog and Toad Together um, called uh, Dragons and Giants. And it's a story in which Frog and Toad decide to figure out if they're brave. And they decide they're going to figure this out by doing things that are intimidating to them. They climb a mountain and they're, you know, almost attacked by a hawk, etc. And by the end of the story, they race back down to, I can't remember which one of their homes, and one of them's under the bed and one of them's hiding in the closet and they discuss how brave they both feel. And so the story very nicely raises questions about what it means to be brave and can you be afraid and brave at the same time, et cetera. And so um, the way in which, and again, there's many ways to do this, but so I, so I guess I should say one way in which 
to initiate philosophical exchange about the story would be at the end of it to say to your child, so do you think Frog and Toad are right? Are they right? And see what the child says. Now, the child might say something like, um, I don't think they're brave. How can you be brave if you're, you know, hiding in the closet? And so then you could say something like, well, why does hiding in a closet mean you can't be brave? Or in sort of the example of the parent following a step that I think wouldn't be as helpful, um, or you could say, you know, it seems like hiding in a closet always is going to mean you can't be brave. So if you can't be brave when you're hiding in a closet, then it means that frog couldn't be brave, right? So can toad still be brave? And, and, so, and, and the reason that I think this kind of approach is less helpful is it sort of boxes the child in right away, right? And it's really pretty heavy on the parent's kind of logical train of thought. Mm-hmm. And I think what will happen is you'll start to get more and more one-word answers or silence, and the child will be thinking, you know, I never want to read the story again. <laughs> the parent <laughs> will be thinking, well, this is not working very well. And so, the, so I think the way, the, 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 really the approach I advocate is to just be as open-ended as you can. And, for example, so the child might say something like, well, I don't know if they're brave, but I think they're really good friends. I think Frog really loves Toad. I'm kind of turning this conversation in a completely different direction, right? And and I and I would say because again, this is, there isn't like a, a lesson plan here that we want our children to learn what bravery is or whatever, right? I would say go with it, right? Say, well, so why do you think Frog loves Toad or whatever, as opposed to saying, oh, we're getting away from the bravery point, you know? Because who cares? Exactly. Um, so. Uh, those open-ended questions are key. If you're asking a, a closed question, like, well, why? Um, and you're kind of, it's a leading question. And so mm-hmm. the child kind of knows what you're expecting or what you want to hear or what you already think. And uh, it's a less engaging conversation for them. And so they'll kind exactly. of uh, back out of it, like you said, with those one word answers. Um, and, and it's kind of a delicate balance because, on the one hand, right, you don't want to ask these leading questions that clearly indicate that you've got an agenda and, you know, you want the child to, to repeat it for you, which, of course, children are so used to doing in school, right? We figure out what it is the teacher wants us to say and we say it. And that's what we, you know, we really don't want to repeat that particular dynamic with our children because I think that's really not what philosophical inquiry is all about. But on the other hand, you do want to kind of sometimes push things a little bit more deeply, right? So, you know, the child will say, well, I don't think hiding in the closet makes you brave. And you could say something like, so do you think you can be afraid and be brave at the same time? Or something like that, right? So you can ask some so-called leading questions, but they need to be as open as possible, I guess. And so I think that some of these topics like diversity or identity or bravery do come up in schools but I don't think they often take the form of being philosophical conversations. Like what I feel Mm -hmm. like you're saying is like, let's just think about bravery, you know, and like different ways Mm -hmm. to interpret it. Um, Whereas I feel like in a school, if if bravery ever comes up, it's like the character trait of the month and you're telling people why they should be brave or you're defining it for them. And so you're right. And you're giving 
gold stars out for all the brave kids that month or whatever, which, you know, is fine, but it doesn't really allow the children to think for themselves about what that even means. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think are some of the long-term benefits for children who have the benefit not just to be exposed to the idea of bravery and told to be brave, but get to really think about it uh, over the course of their development? Like uh, what kind of adults are these children going to become having uh, participated in, in conversations like these? Well, we are actually just about to embark on a research study to try and look specifically at some of these things. But what we hear over and over again anecdotally from parents and from teachers and from students who come back to us later and who we see over the years, because we do see many students for a number of years um, progressively, is that the children who have a lot of philosophical inquiry in their lives tend to be, as you might expect, much more comfortable expressing their questions, because I think one of the things that happens in school is that asking questions becomes something that's a somewhat frightening thing to do. It seems like you ask a question in order to indicate that there's something you don't know that you should know, as opposed to just having a kind of inquiring mind and a critical consciousness about about the world. So the students who have a lot of philosophical inquiry ask a lot of a lot more questions. They ask really good questions. They're able to see the questions behind the questions to uncover the assumptions someone might be making when they're asking or answering a question. They're more comfortable expressing their ideas and giving good reasons for them and understanding what makes a reason a good reason. They also seem to be much um, more and more skilled at seeing how someone might hold a view that's different from their own. So that even if they continue to hold a particular view, they understand that someone might see it somewhat differently for various reasons. And we hear again from teachers often that they'll hear children saying things after having philosophy over some time when they're having a disagreement. They hear them saying things like, well, that's your view. I have a different view which is a very different orientation often than children seem to take when they have disagreements. And so understanding that you can have disagreement without rancor and without someone being just completely wrong is really, I think, a powerful thing. So those are the things that we see. In in classrooms, we see a lot of community building, a lot of um, understanding that there are, that each child has a very different perspective and a very different set of experiences that um, launch them into the world. And that seems to create a kind of rich and diverse community that um, I think in some ways is much is very much deepened by philosophical inquiry because of the nature of the questions the kids are exploring. That is that they're questions that don't have settled answers. So the kids aren't expected to, you know, get to a certain point at the end of the conversation or at the end of the unit or whatever. Have you found at all that um, children who are, as they become more willing to ask questions where there are not settled answers, are then more likely or more willing to also ask questions around areas where there are settled answers, like, uh, say, during a math lesson? Um, are, are these students any more likely to seek clarification, even if it's a signal to their classmates that they don't understand? Yeah, that's one of the things we really want to look at because we do hear this. We hear that students, there's more student questioning in general going on in the classrooms, um, which, which would make sense because we do focus a lot on 
questions and the importance of asking questions. We start our sessions with whatever prompt we're doing, and then we ask the children, what questions was this raised for you? So we don't generally come in and say, okay, today's free will day or whatever. We really are open to where the kids want to take the dialogue. In, in the book, uh, you write about many conversations you had with your three sons. And I was thinking, you know, I bet that uh, they came to some realizations that many of their peers might not have come to um, at, at their early age, like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy aren't real. Um, and I don't personally think it's a big deal for a small child not to believe in those things, but it, it could make it uh, more difficult for them to to participate in certain conversations with their classmates who aren't on the same page philosophically. And so I'm just wondering, uh, because uh, we don't work with children in a vacuum, they have to go and interact with other children who are not having these experiences. Uh, what advice, if any, do you have, or did you give your own children about discussing philosophical topics with kids at school or when they were visiting other families? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I'm not really sure that having philosophical conversations leads to realizations like, you know, the existence of Santa Claus not being real uh, any earlier, necessarily. Okay. Um, so, and, and I guess if it did, I would probably offer my children the same advice that I would offer them if they came to those conclusions without philosophical inquiry, you know what I mean? If they were one of the earliest kids to come to those conclusions, which is, you know, don't spoil it for your friends. Um, (laughs) But, but I, but in terms of philosophical conversations generally, you know, I think kids really like to talk with each other about these ideas and a child who has some practice at home I don't think that leads that child to then come in as a kind of a philosophical expert. My sense is it leads that child to then come in and be the one who says, have you ever thought about this, you know, to see what their, what their friends might think. And I, so I don't know that there's other than modeling that kind of open spirit for them. I don't know that there's anything in particular I would be worried about. So, so uh, what I'm hearing you say is that the, the type of child who's been exposed to these open-ended philosophical conversations um, they're not having adults model uh, telling them the way things are. They're having open-ended conversations, so they're unlikely to go to their friends who say are believing in Santa Claus or whatever and say, did you know Santa Claus is not real? Let me prove that to you. Exactly. <laughs> right. That, that's yeah. an important thing to remember. Um, so we're, we're modeling uh, being open-ended and being curious, and uh, we're not modeling <laughs> spoiling uh, life secrets for other people, right? Exactly. And also modeling that there are many ways to think about things, right? Mm. And there are many paths. And that that's, that's one of the beauties of philosophical discourse is that when you talk to other people about these questions, you realize there are so many ways to see the world. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I'm a classroom teacher myself. And although philosophical conversations are new to me, um, for the past several years, I've, I've had weekly current events conversations with third graders and what I found is that they're usually somewhat familiar with issues that are happening in the world because of mm-hmm. what they've seen on the news or they overhear conversations that adults are having. And um, yep. they might bring misconceptions and be talking about these things at recess. And um, that's what I found. But uh, as I began to have these conversations, I found that some of my classroom parents were anxious because the content could involve things like war, which would be really scary for someone who's eight or nine years old. 
Um, so their opinion was that it was either too early to talk about these things or that um, that was the role of, of parents to do that at home. And so similar concerns come up for issues of race or sex or certain political issues um, throughout your years in school. And so I'm wondering, um, in your opinion, is there a right time and place to discuss certain philosophical issues? Well, probably the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I would, because I would say, for example, in, in the classes, in the classes you just described, mm-hmm. your students are already thinking about these issues, right? Because they're overhearing conversations or they're watching the news or whatever, right? So you're not introducing something that's completely new to them, right? Um, you are drawing from what they're already thinking about. And in the same way, I think with now, yes, I think it would certainly be problematic to come into a a first grade class and say, okay, today we're going to talk about morality and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, describe that, that would be, it would seem to me to be unfortunate. Um, But you certainly could bring a story into a class that raises questions about um, war, for example, or poverty or whatever, or, or other social issues, and see what issues the children want to talk about. I mean, they may or may not pick up on the particular kind of difficult issues. They may pick up on some other strand in the book. But if they do pick up on a very difficult, complex, sort of socially fraught issue, it's because they're thinking about it and they want to talk about it. And so it doesn't seem to me that the right response is probably to say, well, we think this is too early. We don't want to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. I don't see that as helpful. Uh, so how would you respond to critics that, that urge us to, to wait before having these conversations? Would you just go to them and you'd say, well, you know, I happen to know that, that kids are talking about these things. They've raised questions about these things. Um, is there anything else that you would say? Well, I think what I would say is, look, wait to see what questions they ask. You're not coming in with the topic, right? So you're coming in with a totally open to whatever topic they're going to raise. Sometimes you can predict it, and often you can't predict it. And so it, I, I wouldn't worry about imposing a particular topic on children because that really is, is not what we're doing, right? We're trying really to stay away from that. But we also don't want to shy away from conversations that the children obviously want to have. Mm-hmm. How can this work be done in public schools? Um, so this, this sounds tricky for so many reasons, right? One, these issues that are raised can be touchy um, for families. Um, it can be new for the teachers facilitating these conversations. And uh, many teachers may feel like they just don't have uh, the minutes in the day to devote to something that isn't going to be tested in the spring. And so uh, what advice do you have for teachers in uh, bringing mm-hmm. in more of these, these discussions into their work? So my, my, so we run workshops every year for teachers about ways to bring philosophical inquiry into their classrooms. And, and really at the core, my advice is that philosophical inquiry is not, does not have to be like a separate subject. You don't have to have philosophy time, right? I mean, some classrooms do, and we run a program in which we bring people from the University of Washington into classrooms to do these sessions, but we also work with teachers who are teaching, you know, middle school math or science or whatever, 
who want to have opportunities when questions come up among their, from their students to engage in some philosophical inquiry around the bigger questions that underpin their subjects. So that, I mean, pretty much anything you teach has some philosophical questions underneath it. And if you create an opening for children and young and youth to ask these questions or to start to think about these issues, they will want to talk about it. And in my experience and the experience of teachers with whom I've worked, it really deepens students' interest in the class and in the subject matter in general because they kind of come to it with both a deeper understanding and kind of more of a personal investment in why we're doing this, what this means, etc. So, so it doesn't have to be, you know, a really time-consuming part of the day. It's really just an orientation where, you know, you're teaching a math lesson and someone raises a question about the nature of nothingness and you spend 10 minutes having a little inquiry about nothingness and then you move on. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be a, um, a major overhaul of everything you're doing. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is so many of these questions are going to come up from students without you needing to plan a lesson around it. Um, acknowledge those questions. Um, if even for a short time, you don't need to have an hour long conversation around nothingness, um, to, to have some benefit uh, in your classroom and for your individual students. Um, they'll walk away from just that short experience thinking like, Oh wow, like that's a good question. Maybe I'll ask mm-hmm. more questions or maybe I'll think about this some more. And that's ultimately what we want is we want people who are thinking clearly and competently and independently. Uh, is it- exactly. I mean, so we, we run a high school ethics bowl every year. We just had our, our event, our annual event was last weekend and we have high school students from all over Washington come and have dialogues around these tough ethical questions. And what's really inspiring about it is that, you know, you'll have a round and there'll be a case and the, the students will present their cases and they'll have the discussion and they'll respond to judges' questions. And at the end of the round, they're still sitting there talking to each other and to the judges about the ethics case because they're so interested in it and they've been thinking so deeply about it. And that's what you want, right? You want the kids to really be thinking about the subjects they're studying, the questions that are of interest to them, not just in the classroom, right, but but outside of the classroom and with their friends and with their parents and et cetera. It sounds like injecting just a a good question, a little bit of philosophy into what you're already doing is going to get kids thinking differently and then also engage them in all the other things you want to teach them. Um, I love what you said about philosophy not being a separate subject. If you're doing, uh, you know, a unit on, say, the the Great Depression and uh, you can talk about equality and justice within that rather than exactly. needing to find reading materials on some other issue, right? And then uh, put that up front in your lesson plans um, to uh, to keep people's attention because those conversations are, are what really engages children. Exactly. Well, uh, Jana, I've taken up uh, a lot of your time this afternoon, so I'll just ask you one more question. Um, what are you working on now? Can you tell us a little bit more about that research project you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so I'm working on a couple of different things. One is we're doing a research project. We're actually in the middle of just formulating this project for next year in which we will be studying um, a series of classrooms at a school who are new to philosophy 
in, and in particular looking at the ways in which philosophy is leading students to ask more questions, to be more engaged in classroom discussion in general, to changing their perceptions of each other and of the classroom community, among other things. Um, so that's a, a project that we're working on with the College of Education at the University of Washington so that we have some social science researchers who are going to be collecting this data and then analyzing it. And then the other thing I'm working on is a new book, which is which is in early stages. I'm just starting it with an article that's going to be published um, at the end of the year, which is really about children's philosophical thinking and the way in which it can um, add to and enhance our national conversations on various topics and in particular topics like justice and equality and freedom and um, the way in which listening to children and really taking them seriously in the way our culture currently does not can be both beneficial to children and to their growing up with some social and emotional skills and confidence that they don't they often don't currently have, but also really beneficial for adults and for our larger communities. So that's the, uh, that's the project. Jana, that sounds like a fantastic book. Um, as, as someone who works with kids and, and realizes that so many adults don't take them seriously, I look forward to reading that as well. Um, so I want to thank you for being on our show today. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Jana. Mm-hmm. 